Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Yael, what's up? Ain't much. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's been forever since we were in physically the same proximity, and I, I recall vaguely some sort of off off Broadway project that we did together at the Republican convention. What year was that? That's two thousand sixteen, obviously. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah, yeah, that was in uh, was that in Cleveland or Cincinnati? I think it was Cleveland. Cleveland. Okay. Yes. Beautiful Cleveland. That was the death of the GOP, which we called back in uh, 2016. So yes. Here we are now. Here we are. <laughs> and and certainly the death of fiscal responsibility and limited government, um, things just seem to get worse and worse. I think we're about to hit 35 trillion today. Is that is that right? Or are we in the vicinity? I think we're getting there. Do we have cocktails when that happens? I think we might have to. Yeah, raise our glasses to something. Because yeah. uh, For my generation and my kids, uh, it ain't looking too pretty. Nope. Um, so something uh, even more depressing to talk about is the administrative state and um, all of the regulatory technocratic authoritarians that are constantly trying to save us from ourselves. And this, this is kind of your current um, portfolio, if, if I could say that. It's, yeah, sure, I don't portfolio. even know what your title is. Like uh, uh, Deputy Director, Consumer Choice Center. Okay. So we had your your colleague on the show, and we talked about beer. Yeah, that's pretty fun. <laughs> but uh, this won't be as fun because, um, and I'll I'll frame this by by uh, thinking about the revelations over the last couple years because I I, w- I was just we were talking about this. I was just on Gad Sad's show, mm-hmm. um, and he had read a book that I wrote about ten years ago. Ten years ago. Good book. Good book. And don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Available on Amazon and every everywhere that people are are selling good books. But there is a chapter in there that I don't regret, but I think I would rewrite if I did it today. It was called "The Right to Know," and it was this this very optimistic view on technology and speech and the ability of of everybody anywhere. Kind of borrowing from from my my spirit animal, John Perry Barlow, um, that was his phrase. And it was about how everybody can know everything if they're willing to put in the time. And you don't have to go to Harvard and you don't have to depend on the New York Times. And, and these were these um, beautiful days when, when speech was still relatively free. Mm-hmm. But even in that chapter, he talks about, um, you know, on the upside, knowledge is completely decentralized and democratized. On the downside, this is a these technologies are a potent weapon that you could turn on the American public mm-hmm. and use it against them. So fast forward to today and an issue that you're very passionate about. There is, uh, um, I didn't realize this, but they've been working on this for two years now. There's a bunch of uh, misguided and perhaps evil senators trying to come up with this whole um techno-authoritarian paradigm to protect kids from dangerous content. Are you against children? Is that why you're opposed to this legislation? Boy, they make it really hard to be against something like that, right, when they put the kids in the title. Yes, it's the Kids Online Safety Act, so we know if it has it in the title, they're going to do something to protect it. 
And every single thing that Congress does or state legislators do, you know, they always have an emphasis on one particular thing, normally timed within an outrage. And the current outrage is that everybody, everyone and their mother, hates big tech. The left hates big tech. The right hates big tech. They have their own reasons for doing so. Uh, for the right, it's that you know some people got censored. For the left, it's that more people weren't censored. <laughs> you know, so everyone wants to have more control over the information that's online, who has ability to access online. And they're kind of using now a lot of the child narrative for looking at what young people are doing on social media. So there's all these kind of panics that are popping up. A lot of it is a lot of angst around TikTok and who owns TikTok and what are they actually doing there and is everyone on Instagram or they're being addicted. Their solution for this is to impose restrictions on any social media platform that would basically undo everything that we have from Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act, thanks to Ron Wyden, by the way, senator from Oregon. So they want to give liability now to platforms for the content that's hosted there. Why is that important? Why is that something of concern? Because it's essentially a Trojan horse for digital censorship. That's what it is. If they're going to say that you're now liable, we're removing the great thing that made the internet the freest place to be, this kind of techno-optimism that you once had. <laughs> that was what we thought we would have with technology and the internet. And they're going to use this, and they're doing that at the state level. Um, in Virginia, they just had something that passed the Senate. I believe it's been killed the bill now. They've done similar things in Utah and Florida. They want to impose on the social media companies or online platforms to say, you need to figure out if this is someone who's a minor. 18 or younger and find a way to block their access or severely restrict their feed. Don't use algorithms and the rest. So that is the imposition that the bill would have on any company that offers accounts. Now, why is that bad? Because if you're going to try to find kids, you got to figure out who the adults are. What does that mean? You have to KYC, know your customer for basically every single online service you use. So that's the end of anonymity on the internet. And that is something that the internet has empowered and allowed us to, to grow and to communicate, but we don't have to use our real names. We don't have to show our ID for everything. It's grown into that, and I think that's actually worrying. It's worrying when websites do it, when private firms do it, but it's even more worrying when the government will now require that all the firms do it. So that's why I'm really concerned about it. It's sort of like this is a total sidebar, but it strikes me um, as not dissimilar from from efforts of Homeland Security to build um, a security infrastructure going through the airport. Um, somewhere along the way, in the last year or so, they stopped asking for my ID, and they just took a picture of my face. And they knew who I was, so they had all of my biometric data. I didn't give it to them, they took it. And I know one of the critiques of, of this effort is to do this right, you're gonna have to really depend on some sort of uh, Chinese social credit system, biometric data type monstrosity that is, it, it is the worst possible thing that I can articulate and then some, but you're gonna do it with kids. Mm -hmm. And that, that's dangerous on, on many levels. Like um, you may not know this, but sometimes the government is not good at protecting data. I don't know if you ever heard that. I have a little bit. And I, I happen to, 
uh, I have friends who've told me on the dark net, you can find anything, particularly within these leaks. There are databases, files, social security numbers, driver's licenses. Every time that there is a leak, that information is out there. You might not see it on what we call the clear net, but it's out there on the dark net. And if the government will be requiring companies to collect that, okay, sure, the private companies will do their best, you know, to have their information, but, you know, that's a honeypot waiting to happen. Yeah. It's a cyber hacker's dream to be able to have that information, which the government requires. And it's very similar to, uh, you kind of inferred before, talking about the Twitter files, where we learned a lot about the government jawboning social media services, that there was pressure to censor people like RFK or censor people like Trump or whomever else. And those were efforts that were done by the government, putting pressure on the companies because they didn't really have legal power to do so because it'd be against the First Amendment. But it's always this kind of leaning on the companies to do something. More people kind of have a backlash against the companies when really everyone is in the wrong. You know, companies, I believe, should actually be more forceful and stand up and say that they won't do it. And some of them have, some of them will, some of them are shutting down some services that they won't make available. I know that, you know, that this could be an avenue that other companies can take, but it's going to be hard. There's uh, Michael Schellenberger has uh, just recently released um, new reporting that shows that um, one of the problems, and this was specifically, I think, at, at the old Twitter, not the glorious new X, but the old Twitter, um, that the way that the government infiltrated all of these censorship apparatus machines was they basically sent their guys in. So there are a lot of former um, uh, government spooks working at at all of these tech companies. So it wasn't it wasn't so much that they were being jawboned in some ways; they were being captured. Um, yeah. And the, and the people making the decisions were the people that had the relationships back with the government agencies. But but yeah, the the irony of this, and I, this is this is sort of the my cynical view. We have just learned over the last three, I guess it's been three years now since since Elon Musk released the Twitter files, the um, outrageous extent to which the government would go to censor political speech that they didn't like. And it wasn't just about lockdowns and it wasn't just about the origins of COVID. It, it really became about everything that they didn't like. And, and um, then they were exposed. So in some ways, um, you know, if we can't scare them to death with a mysterious virus, maybe we can scare them into submitting to this censorship regime by wrapping it around the interests of children. Yeah. This is not a new strategy. It's we, not. We always, yeah. we always put the children first, and it always puts the children last in practice. Well, you remember everything with uh, sort of satanic verses, rituals, the, the music industry, Hillary Clinton, Tipper Gore, like that was all the stuff that I remember growing up watching on Frank TV. Frank Zappa's glorious speech. <laughs> To the, to the Senate committee um, is beautiful. It's, it's made for good viewing. And, yeah, and, you know, look, there are issues with people on social media and online, particularly for younger people. Uh, there are, like, body shaming issues, and, you know, some people are bullying. You know, there are Snapchats that are created to make fun of someone. And I think in, in these circumstances, a lot of people point to this, and they say, well, social media is, is the problem. But bullying has existed forever shaming has existed forever this kind of peer pressure it's kids being kids using new technological tools 
uh, to quote my uh, sort of my Canadian fellow um, Marshall McLuhan, who's like sort of the media philosopher, you know, he always made the point that we're always reliving this nostalgia and we're just repeating everything that we've done throughout time with new technologies. You know, everything that is the television is basically what the radio was. And if it wasn't the radio, then it was the Roman, you know, script reader. So we're always just kind of reinventing our media in a new function. I think everything was fine before the printing press. Yeah. And, and that's when things got out of control. Then it was fine. <laughs> but I think with, with that present sort of focus on mental health is, is sort of the big one now. That in the pandemic, it goes back to that really, everyone is forced to be at home. Everybody was glued to their digital devices. Many of the young people who went to school could no longer go to a physical school, had to do it online, and your life became online. And everything that you used to do in person gravitated to that. The normal filters and social cues that you would have sitting at a table or talking in the lunchroom, all of that went away. Now, do you blame social media for all of the ills of our society and young people and bullying? Or is it just the constant problems that we've had with generations of kids? and being or, different or in schools. Or, or you might be shocked to hear me say this. Do you blame the bastard that, that locked our kids down and forced them to wear masks and said that they couldn't go to school? Maybe that had something to do with it. That could well be. <laughs> there was definitely uh, mitigating factors there. I, I definitely do think that revisiting what happened in the pandemic, I think it's still appropriate for today, specifically when it comes to the digital stuff, because when did a lot of this illiberalism sort of stem, you know, there's always been illiberalism lurking and all of these different legislative proposals, but talking about censoring certain people or locking down certain companies but not others, there were a lot of companies that were advantaged. The big box stores were still open. You know, in Michigan, you couldn't buy your seeds, but, you know, you could buy your groceries. So there's always these these kind of differences that were made, and I think it does go back to the pandemic, unfortunately. And with the digital censorship, you know, they kind of have a playbook. I, I really do think the reporting by Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi that they've been doing the past couple of weeks, I hope it picks up a lot more. People need to know what's going on. And there are all kinds of nonprofit groups, network setups, you know, internet observatory boards. These are the people who give the command of who to censor or what to censor. So it's out of the hands of the government. It's not the government doing, it's private entities and institutions but we kind of know where they get the inference about who to censor or blame or kick off. Free the People is embarking on our most ambitious project to date to document and expose the lies behind the greatest public health failure in my lifetime. We're talking to insiders with firsthand knowledge of the government's role in funding, creating, and then covering up the COVID-19 virus in our exclusive new documentary series, The Cover-Up. But I need your help. We won't get to the bottom of this scandal alone, so I'm asking viewers to crowdsource any information that could be helpful to our investigation. If you're watching this, you already know what the government did during lockdowns was unforgivable. Help us get to the truth and prevent it from ever happening again. To get involved, go to freethepeople.org slash coverup. That's freethepeople.org slash cover-up. The truth is out there. There's, there's, there's ultimately kind of a stark choice here. Either you get an open-ended platform 
with all of the positive aspects of that, the ability to, to know what's going on, the ability to, to sort of build your own curriculum um, outside of uh, school or university structure, um, an infinite number of goods that come out of free speech and free exchange of ideas, um, or it is censored. Mm. And there's no good way to censor because the government fails at everything, assuming that it had the best interests in mind, which it doesn't. But even if it did, um, there's there's no rational way to, to implement the kinds of, of content moderation that, that you're describing in this legislation. Um, but add on top of that, that, that their interests are not necessarily good. And I, I get particularly frustrated with conservatives, and maybe we can name names on this legislation, that think that they want to get the ring of power so that they can dictate to social media companies that they shouldn't allow X, Y, and Z. And you can imagine what those are from a conservative perspective. Um, but conservatives just aren't great apparatchiks and that apparatus ultimately will be taken over by people that will weaponize it against um, what I would call small government conservative values. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not all their values will, will get punished, but like, what are they thinking? Well, for uh, Senator uh, Blackburn, <laughs> who is the Republican sponsor on this, for hers, it's basically a way to protect the kids. That's her kind of main emphasis. That's what she's talked about. While at the same time, screwing as much as possible to the wall, big tech. And it has to do with the censorship that they claim was done at just big tech's behest. So in a way, we shouldn't think that we could, you know, put together legislation that's like purely a penalty against company A or B, but that's what's happening and it's the norm. And much like you're talking about, it's the grand pendulum of uh, the sort of political situation you cause. When you give government that power, you have to be prepared to lose that power when your guy's out of office. And it's going to swing back on you even harder. And we're seeing that happen, you know, in country after country. There are examples that we have like in Argentina uh, with Milai a totally different way, where he's actually going back and restructuring some of those institutions. But if we look to the European Union, they've actually already put in place their version of the Kids Online Safety Act. They have the Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act. It is censorship by design. It is the power to censor. And you've had Thierry Breton, who's the commissioner there, try to bring Elon Musk in the room to tell him he's got to censor A and B he will have none of it. <laughs> you can follow Elon's jet online, right? You're not going to see him showing up in Brussels anytime soon. Um, a shout out to FU Money um, and Elon Musk. Um, the, so call out to Marsha Blackburn. And uh, yep. when did conservatives decide that the government knew how to keep kids safe? Because they spend all of their time uh, righteously criticizing government schools and and criticizing all of these government programs, which always have children in the title. If, if, there's, if children are in the title, you probably know that it's hurting kids. Um, but uh, there, there was a time when, when conservatives believed that um, parents, mm -hmm. radical idea, that maybe parents were better at parenting the children than, than some faceless bureaucratic agency filled with gray-suited Soviets. Where'd that go? So I don't know if it's a core part of their philosophy that government will do better. I really do think that as much as, much as this is about social media, 
it's because of social media's impact on the politicians and politics too, because they get to go and bring tech CEOs before them and say they have blood on their hands and make them apologize to parents in the back of the room. They get to enjoy immense power as politicians. And in a way, they have some hand in it and they want to create that avenue to where they can pat themselves on the back or they can go back for re-election and say, hey, look, we tried to go after big tech. We yeah. did it. So that's why when you look at people's clips whenever they're fundraising for office, for instance, it's their moment that they had on C-SPAN where they were calling out you know, this and that tech CEO. So in a way, it's always kind of self-enforcing. So they continuously have this pattern. Is anybody really being true anymore? Are we being honest? Are we having legislative debates about policy and what the actual impact is? Or is it really just about getting elected in per perpetuity, I guess, <laughs> so that we can one day perhaps implement our agenda? I, I'm pretty cynical at this point, having studied politics and legislation and seeing how a lot of it works. There's a lot of cynicism at play. And I, I do think we just need to have a couple truth tellers, people who actually understand this stuff. And there are plenty of coalitions that are against this. I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of LGBT groups that came out against this in the very beginning. A lot of the privacy folks are obviously against this stuff. You kind of see a political dividing line. But again, if they're going to get Republicans and Democrats together, it's going to be very hard to do this. But, you know, we know what happens when bills are bipartisan. They're not always in yeah, our best it's, interest. It's, um there is, there's, there's probably, like, I think you're right. This isn't really thinking through the long-term consequences of what this, this legislative apparatus would do. It's, it's political payback for tech companies that, that participated in stifling Republican voices. Yeah. Um, but I still, like, even if, even if payback's a bitch, um, a bigger bitch is when you've created this monstrous um, administrative apparatus that you have no control over. I think it's I think it's widely naive. And again, I'm going to pick on Republicans to think that a president actually has that much control over uh, unfireable federal bureaucrats. This is a problem that we've all acknowledged. Um, Donald Trump wasn't able to do it, um, certainly. So um, I, I think it's I think it's dangerous. One one last thought on this, and then we'll move on. Um, I mentioned John Perry Barlow, and before before we talked, I, I went on the Electronic Frontier Foundation's website, which sure. which is sort of uh, you know I would call it, it leans left, civil libertarian. It's it's what liberals used to be before they became so censorious and yeah. and not wanting for people to be free to speak. And and a good there's a good summary, uh, I think, from a left perspective mm -hmm. as to why this is bad for marginalized kids. And I, I think if, um, if, if people want to read this, um, you, you can see all the reasons why this is a horrible idea um, from their perspective. And I, I would agree with them on all that and then some because I, I do think that this looks to me like um, the, the beginnings of a great machine that will help us determine in the future which citizens are good citizens and which citizens are bad citizens. And you and I don't get to decide that. Mm -mm. Some faceless bureaucrat's going to decide that, and that's going to go into your social credit score. And pretty soon you're debanked just like your, your friend uh, uh, Justin Trudeau did to those, those beautiful truckers. 
not my friend, but uh, yeah, definitely bad. And you know, there were ideas floated around, um, kind of a, a uh, there was a bill that was actually introduced by Maxine Waters to make it so that there would be no more private credit rating systems. It would be a government credit rating system so that therefore it's the government who will tell you how credit worthy you are and surely there would be no bad things that would be introduced to make it more difficult for you to get a loan or something else that the government would deem uh yes <laughs> i i think though on for for eff they obviously have a very good breakdown of this they come at it from a very good perspective and we just have to imagine that what they're trying to set up in a way is some kind of huge spying machine that every single company is going to be required to do. So what are people, individuals, like users, consumers, what are we going to do? To opt out of that, it's pretty simple. We're going to find other platforms, other means. We're going to use VPNs. We're going to you know, use Tor browser. We're going to figure out ways around it. Not everybody is going to be able to do that. I think there will be technological solutions that will improve it. So I'm not fully pessimistic on it. However, you know, there are a lot of people who are not going to be able to use those tools. Yeah. I think we do need better learning about which technologies work, how we can get around things, because there are so many options and things that we can do. And there are all kinds of services. That's kind of what everyone likes is that we have things like Instagram or TikTok or well, maybe not, but you know, Facebook or Twitter or anything else. And there are all kinds of other platforms, too, that use keys and more secure logins and are anonymous, totally anonymous, things like Reddit. You know, these exist and there's a diverse set of them. I just hope we're not making it so that they're going to be fewer in the future because only one or two companies are really going to be able to comply with all this stuff. And by the way, that's the, the, the other dirty secret, perhaps, is that there are certainly some incumbents that sort of welcome this because it, it shuts the door to competition inside of this and shifts it into... Um, I don't know what the elegant term is, this, this, this crypto universe that, that is, again, free mm-hmm. and, and allowing for, for speech, which is why every politician, probably on this legislation, but certainly um, the Elizabeth Warrens in the world, are completely freaked out by cryptocurrency, uh, crypto technology generally, and Bitcoin specifically. Mm. Do you see how beautiful this segue is in our conversation? It's a great one. It's a great one. And you, you, uh, um, and it, this is all like uh, deep state versus consumers kind of conversation, but to me, quite related because the, 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 the solution I think to a lot of this, I, I think the government's going to keep doing this stupid stuff, sure. and I think it's very difficult to stop them. You can you can slow it, and you can point out the hypocrisy and the dangers of it, um, but maybe we have to innovate our way out of this stuff. And and you're a, you're a big uh, Bitcoin guy, right? Mm, I am, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin offers a lot. You know, that's uh, any any anyone who's studied Bitcoin for many hours. Uh, you know, normally we tabulate it. I don't show how many hours you studied it. There's kind of an answer for everything, and even at social media, it's about public keys and private keys. You don't need to do. Uh, uploading your ID or your birth certificate. When you have public keys and private keys, you can prove who who you are. You can do that. It's part of the uh, code of Bitcoin. It's what you do with every transaction. You have your public key, you have your private key. The private key that you hold that holds basically all the information and wealth that is your key, the blockchain, that is your identification of your digital property. 
and you can take that into social media. You can take that into speech. And, you know, there are great social media platforms that implement that. For cryptocurrencies right now, what they're doing is led mostly by Elizabeth Warren, by uh, FinCEN, which is like sort of the big financial regulator. They're trying to cut off as many of the up-and-coming crypto companies and trying to intervene in these blockchains so that they can try to, once again, censor transactions or stop them. And in many areas, they're succeeding, but overall, they really can't because it is totally decentralized. There are differences between different blockchains. You know, I tend to be favorable to one, but I think consumers should have access to all this stuff. And many banks recognize that. Wall Street now recognizes it because there's a huge, you know, ETF world for Bitcoin. But it, here's an alternative to finances and ways to send value on the internet that basically is the same as gold that you're able to protect, you're able to keep, and it's very cheap to send around the world. It's difficult for people like Elizabeth Warren to understand because they only think of worst case scenarios, you know, financing of terrorism, you know, money laundering, all of this. But the numbers that are done in cash in U.S. dollars are, you know, 80,000 times that. <laughs> At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. So does the the, the, the sudden passion to uh, the Fed is monkeying around with uh, central bank digital currency. I know other governments are as well. Suddenly this is all we hear about and, and how beautiful it's going to be when, when everything is streamlined and and the government has created an alternative to all of these chaotic and and, and dangerous uh, cryptocurrencies. Is it a desperate response to their to their losing control of this process? Do they, do they understand what's going on? It, it's a bit. It's a bit like uh, a lot of the the taxi companies all of a sudden offering an app and yeah. the ability to pay with cards all of a sudden as soon as Uber comes into existence. So so there is that. Uh, one, when it comes to looking at whether it be the United Kingdom or Canada or the U.S., there are all of these central bank digital currencies being planned. They want, they see the innovation that actually comes with blockchains and with Bitcoin specifically, because it's a public ledger. Everyone can see it. It's transparent. Nobody can fake data to it. Now, what does the government kind of want to do? It wants to create its own central ledger to be able to move value around. But I don't think it's going to be the same. It's not going to be transparent. We're not going to be able to follow exactly where the money is or how much money there is. By the way, which money, right? What money? What is it, $35 trillion in debt? So their plan, and I, I, I do see it as pretty nefarious. A lot of it has to do with we want to identify everyone who's sending money. Because we have to remember, any transaction you do over $10,000 has to be reported to the IRS. And those numbers keep getting smaller in other countries, uh, particularly in Europe. But that 10,000 number has existed since the 70s. What was $10,000 in 1975 versus today? You know, you buy just a car with cash, that can be way over $10,000. And that has to be reported, has to be broken down. So I think a lot of it has to do with just trying to track as much money as possible, track where the money is going or where it's coming from, and realistically to give government more of a cut. 
which they're going to inevitably have to do if we're ever going to pay off any debt, any of this. So they're using the language of technology, of crypto world, you know, all the central bankers getting excited. But I think it is a, in a way that we would be less free, not more free. So easy to oppose. Well, why do they care about debt? Uh, modern monetary theory just says, poof. We can just do it. Well, we got to pay for the, the stuff around us, you know, somewhat. We need new, uh, you know, investments, new tanks at some point. You know, we got to secure the border, obviously. That's the big talking point right now, the right. I think there's going to have to be some value transfer it is a lot about tracking that information and tracking what you're doing. Um, again, with Elizabeth Warren and many of the people in Congress, and I actually will give praise, there's a lot of great people in Congress who are very good on this issue and understand the innovation of cryptocurrencies. You have you know, people who've actually written bills that go into specific detail about what should be allowed or what so we're I've, able to so do. So I've had Warren Davidson on, who's, He's great. who's one of the rock stars on this. Who else is is a champion? So you have Tom Emmer as well. Uh, you know, he's like number three in the house. So he's actually, he not only talks about this, but he walks the walk. You can look at his financial disclosures. You can look at Ted Cruz and his financial disclosures. Uh, Ted Cruz has been very good on this. You've had some members of uh, the Democrat Party. You've had in uh, New York, uh, Kirsten Sinema is her name, Senator there. Um, so you, you, or no, that's uh, Arizona. That's Arizona. So New York is Kirsten Gillibrand. So yes. she's been a big leader on this as well. So you've kind of had some of the senators from the left who've also been very open to cryptocurrencies because there is an argument for the left that is about economic empowerment, individualism, trying to disintermediate from banks. You know, there are arguments for that. There are some people who do discuss those kind of progressive issues, but it is true that there is much more of a fan base for cryptocurrencies really amongst the right right now. I'll butcher his last name. Uh, we just had Jorge Jurassi. How do you say this, Logan? Jurassi. Um And he was taught, and he's, he's really into uh, crypto advocacy as well. Mm -hmm. And his point is that it is uh, it is an important tool for political dissidents and the poor in a lot of these countries. He's talking about Venezuela, but this sure. is true all over the world. And and it's 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 interesting to hear his perspective because when you say that the government wants to know who's doing what, realize that the end game here is is about oppression. And, and we don't really think about it that way. Like, oh, they're just trying to make sure that, that bad guys aren't doing bad things. No, they want to control all of us. So this is not a small issue. There's a recent example. Obviously, we just had the uh, death of uh, Alexei Navalny in Russia. And uh, there's a story about the foundation tied to his name. And uh, they received crypto donations. And uh, the Russian authorities actually went to the crypto exchanges and demanded that they tell them who those people were. And they actually got those names, and there are some stories about some of those people likely disappearing or at least being arrested. That's the thing that is sort of pharmaconic about cryptocurrencies is, yes, everything is open and public, um, but that can be traced back. And that is kind of what governments are doing by requiring everybody to give all this information is they're actually putting more people in danger. It's just the same arguments, the kind of KYC arguments with logging into a social media service are now applying to money. So the amount of cash that people used to carry and use, and now when you go buy things, everyone's using cards. Apple Pay, Google Pay, whatever it might be, or debit cards, credit cards. We don't use as much cash, and frankly, every time that we 
try to discuss cash, you know, in legislation, it, everyone's very much against cash, you know, for the convenience sake. But cash actually grants us something that we don't really have anymore, which is anonymity. You're able to carry that around. It's not tied to your name. It's fungible. I think we should have a right to have that, to use that, and it should transcend into the world of cryptocurrencies as well. This is why I pay my bar tabs with cash so that Terry doesn't know that I actually had eight beers. Like That's a smart idea. How many shouldn't. beers did you have? <laughs> until, until I get home and I can't really make any sense and then cat's out of the bag. Yeah, and then you try to record an interview. It doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think the, the financial empowerment like you're talking about in Venezuela, I mean, that is it's just key, uh, particularly, you know, it's a sanctioned country. You have rampant inflation. For many people, things like Bitcoin or even other alternatives like Tether, let's say, are basically their only safe asset that they can have, that they're allowed to have. And if they can lock that up with a cryptographic key that is just 12 words written down on a piece of paper, they can carry it across the ocean. They can carry it across the water. They can carry it across a border. If the police raid their house, they can keep that secret. And I think that's a power that many in government are very afraid of. Yeah. Uh, speaking of central planners, another issue that you're working on that I at least want to touch on is the the head of the Federal Trade Commission is very she, she apparently understands how to reorganize Amazon in a in a more rational way, which I I always trust bureaucrats and politicians to organize an infinitely successful and complex companies. But the but the irony of this, um, she's very worried about this, and you can explain to us why. But the the irony of this, back to my singular obsession, is that um, all of the advocates of lockdowns imagined that you could just flip a switch and shut down a complex economy in March of 2020. And they did that, and they didn't imagine supply chains, and they didn't imagine this, this beautiful tapestry of, of people and talents and, and workers and they had this shady agency determining who was essential and who was non-essential. And in the process of doing all that, they, they ended up centralizing um, a lot of economic power in these tech companies that were, that were strategically situated to continue providing goods and services while, while mom and pop businesses were shut, shut down, locked down. Mm-hmm. And now some of them, of course, probably lobbied for that because they, they knew what it would do to the economic impact. But now she's worried about it, and she's not the only one. I think there's a lot of politicians demagoguing about the, the power and strength of, of, of Amazon. But it's like, in, in, in a certain sense, you did this, you political people. Mm. I, I think it is it's objectively true, particularly with the mom-and-pop you know, shops that weren't allowed to open, that weren't allowed to sell seeds in Michigan. I keep going back to that, but it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Don't let it go. Don't I, let I it can't, go. I can't. You know, it's like uh, Governor Gretchen, madam. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's totally right, particularly during the, the pandemic. But now, so looking at the, the FTC, the entire idea is it's supposed to protect fair competition. That's sort of why the agency exists. It was kind of, you know, slung together in the 30s and 40s. And the idea was you have all these uh, railroad barons, you know, these guys own the entire economy. You have John D. Rockefeller, you know, big oil man. The entire idea is that these companies have grown so great and they've done so by penalizing some of their competitors and making the market generally unfair. 
sort of how it has been for many years. The argument they make is that companies like Amazon specifically, or let's say Google, where there are other kind of uh, lawsuits right now, these companies are so big that they have necessarily quelched some of their competitors using very deceptive methods. That's the argument that's used by Lena Khan and the FTC every time they've gone to trial. So there are ways for doing this is trying to stop any acquisitions or mergers. So I think uh, Amazon was trying to buy like the Roomba company and they said, well, we can't have that. So then like a lot of murmurs from FTC and murmurs in the European Union, they're like we can't have Amazon. I think uh, Senator Warren, once again, to go back to her, she said, do we really want Amazon to have the layout of your house? You know, like this is what, you know, and, and that deal was killed off. She, she's offended by that idea because she wants to have the layout of your house. She wants to know what's in your house. So that that deal was killed off and something like 300 people lost their jobs yeah. because like the, the company is essentially not going to be able to make it. They don't have the investment from an outside company. And when you're so fixated on one company and hating it, you're going to view everything they do in a negative light, even if it's just business. So what you've had with uh, Amazon specifically, there's a couple suits that they've launched against it, but it has to do with you know what they call these uh, dark patterns. That's a word that was actually used in that. Is essentially, if you're trying to cancel, let's say, your Prime subscription, how hard or easy do they make it? And they have they make a point of counting the number of clicks it takes you to get to the cancel page. Like this is what the FTC lawsuit is about. This is the kind of stuff you're trying to do to take down, you know, whatever trillion dollar company. It's ludicrous. And looking at all the other companies that exist, it's you know, they want to make an argument that this is a monopoly. At the same time that we have a company like Timu spending, I don't know how much on Super Bowl commercials that kind of came out of nowhere. But there are alternatives that exist. Alibaba is out there. Timu is there. And more people are buying things online or at their shops or Walmart.com. There's all kinds of competitors in that field. Uh, it's just because there's a slight element of the progressive left that totally hates Amazon e-commerce, and they kind of view that as the personification of capitalism. And yeah, that's it's at least the two main cases right now against Amazon. I'm sure there'll be others that they'll invent and use very novel legal theories. But this is the kind of stuff I it's just pretty disturbing. I don't think it's what the government should do. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So when I, um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this, but when I see concentrated economic power, I always wonder what sort of barriers to entry the government has created, perhaps in cahoots with, with the big business in question that would be the right place to fix any potential problem. If it's a real problem, we need competition if we need competition, um, maybe less regulation mm -hmm. so that, that these small startups can, in fact, comply. I still remember, um, I guess four years ago now, the, I think that was the first time Mark Zuckerberg was hauled before the committee and, and being scolded for, but this is after Trump got elected, so it was all his fault that, that, Obviously. that conservatives used social media to to organize, even though Barack Obama had done it and had been celebrated for it uh, oh, yeah. 
before that. Um, and his his comment was was blatant, but um, no one seemed to notice except me. Um, I forget if it was a Senate or House committee, but let's pretend it was a Senate committee. Senators, I would love to help you write the legislation for content moderation. In fact, I have a whole team of lawyers and experts that would be willing to, to work with you to solve this problem. And um, I'm sure he, they went on to do that, but the reality is um, he's just creating barriers to entry to his, his, the, the young startup in a garage somewhere that, that will, will make his company um, irrelevant. Yeah, I, I think it, it's definitely happened in the past. I think for today's tech companies, it, it is true. And it is, it's again this kind of pharmaconic thing where you have the, the good and the bad that comes with it. But with a lot of the, the new barriers that they put up, the amount of technology that you are required to have in order to identify and KYC your users, so like obviously there's only like three companies that are going to be able to do that. You're not going to have you know your brand new AI startup have that ability. Well, you're going to have to spend you know twenty five thousand dollars a month on this new digital software company so they can evaluate and scan people's faces. You won't have the resources to do that. Now, for uh, Amazon and some of the other e-commerce stuff, I mean, it was definitely true with how sales taxes were done. You know, there was a big fight of uh, sort of libertarians for a long time is you know the free ability to have commerce on the internet, not have to pay sales tax. That's pretty much gone away, and now, unfortunately, we still have to pay and do all of that. I think we could be very creative with another, another solutions. Way of, another, that's a great example of centralizing economic power. Yeah. Because, you know, imagine the burden on, on a mom-and-pop business with a, with a small page on Etsy. Can't do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are tons of, of barriers that they have erected uh, over, over time. You know, it's not something that the FTC will really point out, because at least in this administration, they don't see the problem of regulations leading to these bad outcomes. They see the problem always of just big business. And, you know, they, there are a lot of different mergers that they've tried to stop. I mean, they tried to stop the the acquisition of Activision from Microsoft. You know, it was all about Call of Duty and whether or not it was going to be available on other consoles. You know, that's why we're having huge cases why lawyers are getting billions of dollars. And in the end, they said, anyway, we're going to put it on all con consoles anyway. We, we <laughs> this is not part of our plans. And I think this is unfortunately what's happening is we know all of these brands, all this technology stuff. There's just a certain philosophical movement. Uh, they're also called the Neo-Brandeis, Neo-Brandesians. They believe that there's too much economic power for these companies. Government must be there to cut them down, to cut off the tallest poppies, as it were, to use that Australian saying. Hmm. I think that's, yeah, it's just not what this country was built on. There's an entirely new AI moment that we're in. There's a lot of investment, data centers, billions of dollars of investment. Is How is that going to be harmed by what the FTC is doing right now? I think a lot. There's already a lot of scrutiny on Microsoft for its relationship with OpenAI, Google and its AI startup. I mean, going back to cryptocurrencies, all these data centers and things, they're trying to stop them everywhere they exist because of environmental regulations. Well, what are we going to do when we get all these data centers for all this AI code gobbledygook that everybody wants? It's going to be the same problem. So that we have to try to learn to defend those interests for everyone, and it comes down to consumers who can benefit from that, I think. As the great uh, industrial organization economist Eminem once said, the FTC won't let me be. 
<laughs> actually, he didn't say that, but it's pretty close. It's a good title, actually. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, so are you doing any more uh, public singing, or is that just after cocktails and when I harangue you into doing music videos? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, You know, I've done a couple more. Um haven't done any videos though. Hasn't been my thing. I, you know, was writing songs there for a bit. But uh, what is your, your background like? Is like you were doing Broadway as a younger man? Is that right? Or did oh I get boy, that? I wish I was there. I did, I did do a lot of musical theater. So okay. yeah, that was uh, sort of uh, high school, early college stuff. Learning how to sing, learning how to act, and uh, it prepared me very well for you know being in politics now. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I think the theater is something that is just, it's so interesting because you, you develop a passion for figuring out how people's emotions are, how people should act. And then we kind of go to real life and see politicians or regulators. And it's like, man, these guys are obviously putting on some kind of act. Right. Like we know this from the Shakespeare play. You know, this is uh, Antony and Cleopatra, let's say. Well, they're, they're, they're not nearly that good, though. It's, no, they're not. No, no, no. It's pretty pathetic. It, yeah, it is. If it's theater, it's 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 sort of sad. It is, and you know, the, a lot of it again is the C-SPAN effect. And I don't know this argument of if we just got rid of the cameras in the in the House and Senate, like things would be way better. I don't know if that's true. It's an interesting theory. Yeah. If we got rid of the social media clips and the fundraising letters based on those C-SPAN things, it it doesn't sound like a good idea because I I think. Um, there's there's the things you see in front of the camera, and I think we should see them when they're up to these things, and and hopefully be smart enough to see what they're doing. Oh, that um, was the best thing, by the way, when Kevin McCarthy was no longer speaker, is that uh, C-SPAN could actually film anything. <laughs> so they actually, for the first time, started panning and looking in the room. Chaos. It was awesome. That was a great time. There was there's this great clip of uh, AOC talking to Matt Gates. Yeah. And and the memes were just fabulous. And a lot of the legislators, I mean, these are their work colleagues, you know. So a lot of it obviously is an act when they say, oh, you know, so evil, this and that, Republicans this. I mean, you guys, we see you in D.C. You, you go to dinners. We've seen you. Right. You, know? you guys hang out together. You work on stuff. That's kind of normal. But, man, there's, there's a show that must go on, and uh, it is politics. Well, I, I, love, I love watching, uh, reading Bernie tweet from one of his many um, lake houses in Vermont about the the late stage capitalism and concentration of wealth that he single handedly helped um, by by locking down uh, the rest of us. But enough. Like I feel like I've said that ten times now, so I should probably stop. Where <laughs> so you where can people find you've written on all these things yep. that we've talked about? Where can people find your stuff with CCC? Mm-hmm. We'll start there. Yeah, sure. Uh, ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. We're on all the platforms, obviously, uh, as one must be these days. So, plenty of little video snippets. Um, you know, we actually put out this podcast called Fun Police. That's all about the neo-prohibitionist as well, which I know you're passionate about fighting these guys, those who, bastards uh, who, who try to make your beer more expensive. Uh, but most of the stuff is consumerchoicecenter.org. You can find everything there. And you're some sort of glorified expert at some Bitcoin think tank too. Yeah, Bitcoin Policy Institute. Great group of people uh, doing great stuff really around the country and, you know, using sort of more academic language to discover what the great benefits Bitcoin will provide to so many of us. So a great group of people. I'm a visiting fellow there. There's a lot of really interesting policy work being done on Bitcoin, particularly at the state level. I think it's pretty cool to follow. 
and being a part of that, helping educate lawmakers. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are hungry for awesome, great technology, which is pretty cool. I don't think we talk, uh, talked about this on the show. I think we talked about it before the show. Mm-hmm. Talk quickly about about uh, what's going on in Iowa mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a backstop against uh, central federal regulation. So the, the central bank digital currency, that's something that would be, if it is to come to pass, by the Federal Reserve. And in our great system of government in the United States, which is one good thing we still have, the states do have a lot of power. And many state legislators are super skeptical, do not want CBDCs. They have constituencies calling them day and night saying we don't want CBDCs. So one thing that we started to work on is how do you craft language that would be a bill to stop central bank digital currencies at the state level? It's really hard to do it at the federal level. I know Tom Emmer uh, has a bill on that to try to stop them. That'll take time. It's going to be very complicated. Congress is a mess. But at the state level, state legislators are still very efficient. So there's a model bill now uh, that would basically not allow any state institution to touch a CBDC. They could never create an account. It can never be required of your residents or citizens in your state. And they would no longer be able to do that. So that bill is up. I think it should have a vote this week. There's a similar bill in North Carolina that's passed. There are similar bills uh, in, I believe, Mississippi and Missouri that have passed on that. So states are doing the work of trying to stop the kind of loony financial ideas that are coming out of D.C. And I think that is one great positive thing of our American system is that the states can still do that. Very cool. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.